supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and the science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are here in the Spooky Studio, ready to get going with tonight's program. And I'm actually sitting in Matt Costa's seat. And you've kept it nice and warm for me, Matt. Thank you for that. Do you always keep the seat this warm? I do. Now, you guys really messed me up because now you switch seats. I don't want to tell you how I keep the seat warm. I'm guessing it has a lot to do with uh, beans. Um, yes. Sure. Hey, whatever. A lot works. of leafy vegetables. <laughs> Things like that. I'm trying to think of what else causes flatulence, but uh, you, it's it's not a problem for me to think about that kind of thing. But now that I'm over here doing your job, it's a lot harder to to think on my feet and worry about this stuff at the same time. It's amazing to me what you do, man. It really is. I if I haven't so. said thank you in a long time, then let me just say thank you for all that you do. Well, you're welcome, I suppose. Hey, when we put him over there, he talks a lot more. Must be the chair. I think it's this microphone. It's that out. is a pretty nice microphone. I like it. Well, this is Spooky South Coast, where we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. And uh, for those of you who are new to the program, my name's Tim. I'm the the guy who kind of keeps everything moving along here. We have science advisor Matt Moniz, who has over 20 years' experience investigating the paranormal. And uh, he's got three years' experience radio now, so... You know, you can add that to your resume, and of course, Matt Costa, the usually silent assassin, who uh, usually works all his magic over here. But uh, tonight, you know, Matt, you might want to get involved in tonight's discussion, really, because we're going to be talking to uh, David and Scott Goudsward, who uh, David been on the show before. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, a while back we did a program on ancient stone sites of New England, talking about things like Mystery Hill, uh, Dighton Rock. All these strange rock formations and different sites that uh, are all throughout New England. And we were amazed by that show. I mean, here we are thinking we're going to be talking about a bunch of rocks. And uh, first of all, the, the guy came all the way up from Florida wearing a spooky South Coast T-shirt to hang out in the studio with us. So that's, you know, that's uh, pretty cool alone. And then um, on top of that, it was just a damn good discussion, I thought. I was just uh, really impressed with, with Dave in general. I mean, Dave's a, a multifaceted guy. He's also the webmaster for BillMoomy.com, uh, and he writes uh, a, a paranormal like top five list, a, a, a horror top five list on the Internet. He does a lot of different things, so it's really uh, interesting you know, to talk to a guy like this because he can bring so much to the table, and we never would have thought ancient stone sites would be something that would you know, fascinate our audience so much, but it's, it's one of our most popular shows. Well, you got to think of all of the magical connections associated with these sites. These sites are, you know, well-known for a reason, because they were made popular by the original people that put them together, and lots of creepy stuff has happened at these sites. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. Stonehenge and Avery Circle in England. Here in America, we have America's Stonehenge up in Salem, New Hampshire. A lot of weird things have been seen up there, so... To have paranormal activity happen in these areas, yeah, of course that would stand to reason. But to have other people interested in in these things, yeah, that would it, it's historical, and it's also interesting because we don't really know what they're really all about either, too. 
And, and plus, just Dave was a cool guy to hang out with, and his brother Scott came along, and we got to meet them both and, and talk to the show. And so when a, a package arrived in the mail, uh, and it was their new book, I was like, all right. You know, a, a new book from, from two guys that we really uh, thought were a couple of cool guys. And I was like, okay, Shadows Over New England, you know, this is going to be another book that takes us across some of the supposed you know haunted locations of massachusetts of maine rhode island new hampshire vermont but then when i opened it up and i realized what it was i was like whoa this is totally different than a lot of the things that i've seen because this is like a a travel companion for places that both exist and don't exist it's places that are both fictional and non-fictional that have appeared in different horror writing movies uh television shows you know episodes of the x-files episodes of you know, the Night Stalker movie, Stephen King movie, Stephen King books. I mean, everything from Castle Rock to, you know, just places right in our own backyard. Uh, so it was just a really fascinating to, to me to open this up and to say, okay, you've got all these places that don't exist alongside other places that do exist. And the fun part is like trying to, you know, figure out which ones are real and which ones aren't. Because I, I don't know about you, Matt Moniz, but I know you travel around the country going to different paranormal conferences and different things. Uh, do people ever come up to you and say, well, have you ever been to Castle Rock, Maine? You know, How about Derry, Maine? Is it really as haunted as Stephen King makes it sound? You have to explain to these people, these places aren't real. <laughs> Does that, has that happened? I have had a few uh, questions like that, yeah. Um, it It's unfortunate that these places don't really exist because the way he writes them is like, boy, that, I would have a fun time in those places. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be talking about, you know, every every place you can imagine from you know collinsport to uh to real places like uh you know right here in new bedford uh fairhaven matapoise and wareham the south coast area in general uh and and what's really interesting about this book and you can pick it up at shadows-over.com um, but if you wanted to you know really immerse yourself into this book and and, and read some of these places that they're talking about at the same time, you're bound to want to actually go out and get these books and these different things that they're talking about because there's a lot of authors and things that you probably might not have heard about. So I definitely want to uh, get into all of that with the Goudsward brothers and uh, believe we have them on the line, Matt, do we? It's not, it's not easy doing that, but that job either, is it? Getting everybody on the phone. All right, well, uh, why don't we get right into it with Dave and Scott. Good evening, guys. You're on Spooky South Coast with us. How you doing? Hey, guys. How you doing? All right. Is this Scott? This is Dave. Dave. Okay. I think we lost Scott. So yeah, I've been trying to do that all my life. There you go. <laughs> and with with very little success, I take it. Tell me about it. it, it it's funny because uh, I'm not exactly sure that when you came to do the show, he didn't just show up in the parking lot while you were here. <laughs> no, actually, uh, since I did come up from Florida, it was his car. He is slightly cheaper than a rental. That's true, and especially if you can get him to shell out all the gas. <clears throat> I didn't say that. I just did it. <laughs> so now, how did how did the book come about? How did you come up with the idea of, of making Shadows Over New England? Well, it's it's the, the long version would take about four and a half hours, and we don't have that, so the short no, version... thanks to the Red Sox, we've only got about an hour and 15 left. And we lost on top of it. I know. Uh, when I was uh, the last book I did, as you so kindly mentioned, uh, Ancient Stone Sites, was actually not the first book I had pitched to that publisher. I had pitched Shadows Over New England, and what we were specifically trying to do was a travel guide to horror sites. And 
it sort of evolved from there very complicatedly because suddenly you have these sites that exist but they don't exist such as uh, Collinsport, Maine mm. Collinsport, Maine exists if you go to a Dark Shadows convention they know the street layout they know the buildings it's kind of creepy in its own way but what happens is uh, of course they filmed Collinsport in Connecticut they filmed the actual building is in Rhode Island so is that a real location or is that not a real location in Stepford, New Connecticut, same thing. You've got an awful lot of footage shot in Connecticut, but where does that fine line between a real location stop? And it, that's sort of how it started. I mean, it's, it is kind of a slippery slope because, you know, you've got to take into account the fact that, you know, somebody could go to this location if they wanted to see, you know, for example, you know, sorry, Matt. Okay. I was just going to say, I just got brought to a location in Westport, Massachusetts, to the actual grave of Barnabas Collins. Ah, oh, yes, a famous one. It's just not the right Barnabas Collins. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it is one. Yeah, it, it makes you sort of go, whoa, well, that's, that's new. Mm-hmm. Last I heard, Jonathan Fritt himself is still doing quite well. So, Yeah, I believe oh. uh, he's going to be at uh, this year's Dark Shadows convention. I thought yeah, I, I ought to bring the crowds out. There you go. I think we've got Scott in as well now. Scott, are you with us? Yeah, I'm back with you. There's some phone problems. Yeah, there was a lot of phone problems going on here earlier in the day at WBSM, so we're hoping we can uh, rise above all that. And if not, not Lord knows I can do all the talking like always. <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid to do a lot of that brotherly needling. We love that kind of stuff here. <laughs> we're not even related, and we all do it to each other, so... Well, I was just up in Haverhill doing some research for another project, uh, actually a Lovecraft literary trail through North Shore of Massachusetts, oh. and uh, there was a there was a very good chance we were going to kill each other. <laughs> you got yeah. back to Florida just in time. Not for him, digging through old cemeteries looking for gravestones that are you know covered over with uh, debris and you know vegetation from the past twenty years. It's always a good time. Yeah. So, so Scott, how did you get dragged into all of this? Uh, David did it. <laughs> you know, just point the finger at him, pretty much. He was looking for, you know, some help on, on this travel guide that the uh, the book was first going to be, and decided that he needed someone who was more familiar with contemporary horror. Since yeah, that, re- the kind that of, like, really to, uh, is his strength. He likes to go through the stuff covered, covered in dust and cobwebs, and that's his gig. Yeah, you want to talk to Nathaniel Hawthorne or Edgar Allan Poe, I'm your boy. You want to talk about Stephen King or Dean Koontz, you talk to Scott. Well, it was a very nice split. That and the fact that he's actually up there and can do my step and fetch it work. Oh, yeah, it's always a hoot. <laughs> now, Scott, did you uh, uh, just reading through some of these these publications that are referenced in this book? Uh, did you know a lot of these off the top of your head? Have you collected them over the years, or was there just you had to really dig to find where these references were? I uh, spent a lot of time in uh, second read bookstores. Um, usually, most of my studies are spent just digging, shel- you know, uh, shelf through shelf. A lot of time with the library, a lot of time on, you know, the internet, just searching for stuff. And one of the good things is, is I'm on a, a couple of horror forums, and on one of them, there's a lot of, you know, different horror, horror authors on it. So I was, I was able to kind of, you know, go back and forth and ask them questions about the work. That yeah. kind of, you know, it worked in our favor. Self-promotion is a wonderful thing for these guys, and they just couldn't be more helpful. Um, Don Diamasa, 
uh, Christopher Golden, of course. Christopher Golden wrote the foreword to the book, and quite frankly, it's the best prose in the book. <laughs> well, so I mean, to be to be fair, you know, a, a lot of what was written in the book didn't need to be prose. It's it's just very descriptive and very uh, reference material, and it, it's it certainly does the job in that regard. Well, thank you. I it, it's fun. Uh, we're working on another one in the series. We're going to do Florida next. It's sort of payback for Scott. Yeah, now you're going to do all the work. Yeah. But it, anyway, it, I'm still watching all the Gator movies and all the uh, awful exploitation alien movies. And, and don't forget all the biker gang movies that were filmed down there, too. Yeah, he sort of... No names mentioned, but he sort of kiboshed the horror-slash-biker movies. <laughs> oh, yeah? Wow. But it, it, it's a fascinating to compare the two books already. I mean, we're only about thirteen, fourteen thousand words into Shadows Over Florida, and yes, they're related by title, but they are entirely different environments. Up, up in New England, you've got these Hawthorne and Poe and uh, Hannah Dustin and Lizzie Borden, you know, these rich historical figures. Mm-hmm. And down here, you got Blood Freak, the heartwarming story of a motorcyclist who turns into a vampire mutant turkey. A turkey, you say? Yes, he wanders around the rest of the movie with a paper mache head on his head. That is that's a... their that's their whole makeup. Is that available on DVD? Sadly, yes. Yeah, they Blu-ray. Said, I hope not. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, we definitely have to make sure we get a copy of that. Frank Grittner was the director, considered the worst filmmaker in Florida, and that's saying something. Wow, when you you don't even put Alan Smithy on it, then you know it's a. Oh, he a thought movie. he was doing wonders. <laughs> He's the, uh, yeah, he's the uh, Steven Spielberg of biker turkeys. He, he is also the fellow who brought Veronica Lake out of retirement 20 years later to do a movie where she plays a doctor who's developed flesh-eating maggots that can be used in plastic surgery. These are, these are some quality films you're talking about. Oh, yeah, and they're all mine. The, the good thing is uh, Shadows Over Florida will, be, will definitely do them great justice, I'm sure. It's it's going to be interesting to see how good a writer we are to make this stuff look good. And the good thing is, you know, you just go through, you check out the listing for it, you can actually skip them if they're really, truly hideous. Yeah, there's 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 been, there's been some buttes. Well, okay. But then again, there were some buttes up there. I was going to say, the, uh, getting back to our neck of the woods, it's not yeah. exactly like everything is a classic uh, that's made up around here either. No, um, and but they're fun even when they're bad. And I think that's what people forget. If you go onto like the Internet Movie Database, half the movies in my in the book here are listed as the worst movie ever made by the people who watched them, and they're not. You just got to have the right frame of mind. Yeah, that frame of mind being don't expect uh, Gone with the Wind here. Yeah, exactly. Well, but at the same time, though, we do have a rich horror history, and there's so many locations that have been in Lovecraft stories, that have been in mm-hmm. some of Poe's stories. So, I mean, obviously, when you're getting into some of those type of locations, you're you're dealing with something that people have made a connection with over the years. Uh, and to try to present to them, you know, the actual real location, did you find that when you did some of the digging that it kind of took away some of the mystery and aura surrounding these places? Not personally. I don't know how Scott feels on the topic. Well, not not really. You know, uh, you know, like you were saying earlier, you know, Castle Rock is, is a fake place, but there's just so much embedded into it that it just seems like its own little town. You, you can almost picture what it's like. You know, where the where the churches are, where the town square is, just because it's been so heavily written about in all the King's books. 
And the, and the same thing with Arkham, Massachusetts. I mean, uh, game pl- the role-playing gamers aside, there are people who have maps of the different Lovecraft towns based on his descriptions. But the one that I thought was the most interesting once we got into it was Edgar Allan Poe, who was born in Boston. Mm-hmm. But he and Boston hated each other so much that he literally lied about where he was born and said he was born in Richmond, Virginia, just so he wouldn't be associated with Massachusetts. Well, thanks for that, Eddie. And Massachusetts was so thrilled with him, they tore down his birthplace. (laughs) We get our revenge. Yeah, it's actually now an access alley to the Department of Transportation building off the common. It's got a brass plaque. Well, just look what the New England Patriots do to the Baltimore Ravens every time they play. Take that, Bo. It's kind of the same thing. So, but you know, you were talking about these maps that exist for for like Lovecraft's place. I was reading the section on Derry, and which of course is you know the heart and soul of a lot of Stephen King stories. And mm-hmm. it seemed to me like you guys have somewhere in your head or somewhere written down there's there's a map of Derry that you were using because it was so descriptive what you put in there that you can actually envision where these streets connect, where these where these um, where these landmarks are. And I know that when you've got you know. Seven, eight, nine, ten dairy books to to make as a reference that kind of comes together anyway. But did you actually sit down and draw out, you know, how you think the town is laid out? No, but I could. In the case of dairy, I think we could. I mean, there really is one main road, and all of his stories take place along some length of it, and that's you know typical old New England. One if main you, road. If you tell oh, yeah. along with the, um, you know the, the TV version of it. You know, the, the, the town they use for that is just very similar to what you know what you create a mental picture of. Now it, it seems too like, uh, and you kind of mentioned it a few, in a few of the entries, uh, and I don't want to bog down the discussion too much with this because this could be a whole other show unto itself. But you talk about how Derry is kind of a nexus in that King world between kind of the the world of the Dark Tower. And the world that we think of as as the now and the reality, and it seems like that's kind of like the crossing over point between those two worlds. Um, I once read a book; uh, I forget where I what the title of it was, but I actually read it in a Barnes and Noble. I opened it up, started reading over the first couple of pages, and I didn't leave the store until I'd read the whole book cover to cover. Which they really don't like when you do that, by the way. I understand they, they pre- do frown on it. Yeah. yeah, they prefer that you actually purchase them, take them home. But go figure. The the whole book was talking about how all of King's stories are are interwoven, and that they're all basically, you know, part of the Dark Tower. And is that what you found as you were putting together this book and, and researching areas of of his works? Uh, Scott, you want that one, or shall I start blathering aimlessly? Uh, why don't you start, and I'll uh, pick up. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Uh, I think King, at some point, decided this was going to be the situation, because there are several early stories of his before he became, quote-unquote, Stephen King, that when he later anthologized them, he actually changed the location so they matched up with what he was establishing. Okay. So I think he made a conscious decision at some point, and I, I couldn't tell you specifically when, I guess around it, but... At some point, he made a conscious decision that everything was going to be holistically attached one way or another. And he basically retrofit some of his earlier stuff to do so. 
See, I actually tried to contact him to come on to our program, probably right when we first started. And that was what I wanted to be the crux of the discussion. I was like, you know, I know most of the time you're going to go on and talk about your latest book or your latest movie project. I want to bring you on and talk about your universe and how they're all related. Because there's college courses that are taught in this. Yeah, I, I would actually be interested in seeing it. I've always wanted to attend one of those courses. And, of course, I'd also like to attend a few courses he taught, but that's a, that's a different issue, too. I mean, he's... The last time he was doing a, a signing that I'm aware of was down there in a... In New York City, and they were, they were actually raffling off tickets because they're they so hard to get. It was him, his wife, and uh, and his son Owen. It was just near impossible to get into it. And he always claims that he's really not that interesting of a guy. He doesn't understand why people want to talk to him so much. He says, you know, everything that I have to say or that you'd want to know is all characters in the books. You know, yeah. he, he, he himself is is in his own words just not that interesting. That does not mean I would turn down an autographed copy of one of his books, I assure you. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, but I, I think we see this a lot with some of these horror writers, especially up here. You know, uh, Lovecraft, a lot of his stories are kind of interwoven, his locations are kind of interwoven as well. They kind of have a bigger picture quality to them. And, and part of the problem with Lovecraft, or part of the charm, I guess, you could go either way, is that he encouraged other people to use his material. So you've got stories by August Derleth and stories by H. Warner Munn, and he borrows from Robert Block, he borrows, Robert Block borrows from him, and you end up with this very tightly interwoven, occasionally conflicting universe, which exactly makes it look like a, a modern myth series. And I'm not sure he necessarily had that in mind, he was just having fun. Is there... I mean, a common thread in a lot of these stories throughout New England. I mean, do a lot of writers try to um, work along what what others have done? Do you see like a lot of the new writers trying to tie in some of their stories to you know these older locations, fictional locations? Um, I, I see, see a lot some parallels, like Lovecraft stuff. You know that type of thing. Like some of the uh, like uh, Jim Moore is writing a new book based in Innsmouth that's coming out. That type of thing, but. I really haven't seen anything set in, like, Derry or set in Castle Rock. Well, I think um, those are kind of exclusive domain, oh, yeah. though. I mean, yeah, that's all. The might say now. something there, yeah. But Innsmouth, I mean, Innsmouth is the only place I know, fictional otherwise, it has two or more anthologies of short stories by everybody already in print. I mean, Lovecraft's story was a short story, but it generates volume after volume of other stories. And plus, it's a fun place to hang out. It's Newburyport, Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, it's the home of John Cena. You but really want to have fun, go down to Newburyport and tell them that they're in Smouth because they refuse to admit that they were this decrepit, dying little port town that could have inspired such horror. Well, you think you'd want to play that up, you know, build a park and put a statue. Oh, they'll never do it. Tourism money is tourism money, but out in Newburyport, they don't really need the tourism money. And, and Lovecraft yeah. visited the town repeatedly. I mean, he just absolutely adored the place. Uh, there was a big lunar uh, solar eclipse back in the late 30s before he died, and he and publisher Paul Cook, they didn't go out to the main places where everybody was watching it in uh, Maine. They went right down to New Report. He knew where this big open park was. He knew there wouldn't be a big crowd there, so they had a lovely afternoon watching the eclipse. That that shows a degree of familiarity with the town that you only get from somebody who really really likes it. Mm -hmm. 
And you can, I mean, a lot of the streets parallel. Newburyport technically is not Innsmouth because Innsmouth and Newburyport both show up in the story. If you follow the directions in the story, Innsmouth is actually around the mouth of the Essex, yeah, Essex River. So a little further south of there on Cape Ann. Oh, we are talking with uh, David and Scott Goudsward, uh, co-authors of the new book Shadows Over New England. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a break for the news. But when we come back, we'll talk more with them after our weekly news segment, The Week in Weird. And we'll find out some more about some of these haunted locations. And uh, in addition, you know, we'll take your calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Maybe there's a haunted location of New England or a, a mysterious location of New England you read about in a book and you want to find out if it's real or not, if you can visit it, just give us a call and Dave and Scott can absolutely fill you in on that. And uh, we'll talk more about some of these places that are in these books, the, the work of Lovecraft, the work of King, Poe, and some of the more newer, more modern horror writers as well. Uh, all that and more when we come back in just a little bit here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast is back. Are you ready? I am ready. I am always ready. I have Back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, and uh, we are making it through the show. So far, I haven't really messed up anything too badly, Matt Moniz. Are you, are you impressed I with my work? I am quite impressed, yeah. Of course, I don't actually know what any of this means, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'll be able to do it again the next time that we have to do it. Yeah, but you're following Costa's instructions quite well. The problem will be if he's ever not here to instruct me right over my shoulder. No, the phone will be in the other ear. As you're Remember that time that we were uh, trying to live stream and we had Matt at my house and he was trying to hook everything up on the computer? And yeah. It was kind of a disaster. But he talked us through it. He, he got us through it. And tonight, definitely going a lot smoother. So we'll see. Give me a couple of weeks practice and then I'll be all set. He's like, oh, man, for a couple of weeks i got to sit here and worry about you messing up the show. All right, well, I have a little bit of a, an announcement to make before we get into the week in weird, and that's if you... Have proof of the paranormal, and you want to collect James Randi's uh, million-dollar prize, you better hurry up, because he's pulling the offer real soon. The million-dollar prize for anyone who can prove that they have supernatural powers or proof of the paranormal is to be axed after it went unclaimed for 10 years. More than 1,000 people have failed the James Randi challenge since it was set up by the skeptic in 1998. Randi has given two years' notice that he's going to end the challenge, so medium spiritual healers, psychics, and uh, paranormal investigators have until 2010 to claim the prize. According to Randy, 10 years is long enough to wait. Matt Moniz, I just want to get your thoughts on that before uh, we move on. Well, it's kind of subjective when you're dealing with one person's opinion as to what is. He's he's really been, uh, he's really hardlined, you know, what he needs to see to to be 
convinced of the proof of the paranormal. And I think he set up such rigid guidelines that his, his mind isn't open to the possibility that could exist. So, you know, it, it's it, there's not going to be enough to sway him no matter what. Right. That's my point. And uh, but he is insured for that billion dollar claim. So I mean, if somebody does come up with proof of the paranormal, James Randi will pay that million dollars. Well. There's the issue, and that's like what I've said to other people. In science, we generally don't use the word proof. Proof is for, you know, the courts and liquor. You know, and liquor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's subjective. And, and he's looking for the everclear of paranormal activity. He's looking yeah. for 200 proof. So uh, making grain alcohol in Moniz's shed. But <laughs> I don't know. Do you? I, I wouldn't be surprised. Let's not, let's not talk about that on there. Just save me a mason jar. For personal consumption only. Yeah, save me a mason jar full. As long as you don't transport it over state lines, I think you'll be all right. But uh, I, I think that sooner or later, you know, there's going to be pressure from the public to say to James Randi, you know, hey, obviously you're not going to put up this million dollars. Nothing's going to be good enough for you. Can we at least get your opinion on some of the stuff that you saw? And then maybe once the prize is off the table, then maybe we'll hear him say, hey, you know, I did see this. That wasn't that. You know, I was... Uh, if anything was going to convince me it was this guy's thing, you know, I mean, then maybe he'll be a little bit more open and he won't be such a hard line about it. I mean, we'll, we'll have him on the show for sure before the, uh, before the prize is no longer available. But I, I just would like to hear his opinions once he doesn't have to, you know, put his money where his mouth is and say, oh, yeah, I can kind of see where some of the stuff might be. But then again, he's James Randi. Uh, he might not ever say that. At least on our airwaves. No. Or anybody's airwaves, for that matter. Maybe if you uh, give them some of that grain alcohol and take them to Waverly Hills. Yeah, I was going to say, let me have them hang around with me for a little while. I'm sure he would. Uh, I'm sure he'd love to go. Actually, no, wait. That's one thing that I've often heard about him is that he, he's not really willing to actually go out into the field and, and participate alongside these investigators. You'll find that with 99.98% of most of these so-called skeptics or debunkers. It's awful hard to disprove something if you're sitting there in your parking lounger. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a lot easier to believe it, too, when you're sitting here in a studio chair. So, yeah, you know, it's, it, it all sounds good. So, I mean, I can understand, you know, the where he can say, hey, you know, bring it to me and I'll, I'll make the judgment. But you, you kind of want to see firsthand what the conditions are, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to just be taking somebody's word on, well, there was nobody else in the building, you know, Unless you're there and you can experience it for yourself, then nothing will ever convince you. Hence my point. But once you do experience it, it changes your life. Mm -hmm. Saying that firsthand. All right, well, why don't we get into our weekly news segment, a little something that we like to call the week and weird, and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Matt Costa do all that. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. It's a wonderful weird I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the Week in Weird. All right, our first story comes from Newsweek, and it's kind of a long one, so I'm going to try and glance over it as best as I can. Uh, this is about a woman named Laura Day, who is a quote-unquote psychic who uses intuition to help businesses... Uh, Seagate Technology is an $11 billion a year maker of hard drives for the PlayStation 3 and the Microsoft Xbox. And when they went looking for a consultant to run one of its management workshops in the fall of 2006, they went. They bypassed the usual list of Silicon Valley gurus and went with Laura Day, a stylish New Yorker with no tech experience. 
She was amazing, said Ga- Gabriel Lawson, who is the director of software engineering. Anybody who can afford to get her will get 100 times their money's worth. Her expertise is intuition, uh, where she says she can basically tell businesses in what direction they should go. The William Morris Talent Agency has used data to help it decide whom to represent and who to help the company grow. It's like looking over your opponent's cards in a poker game, said Jennifer Walsh, an executive VP at William Morris's literary department. A big Hollywood producer says Day advised him in 2006 to pass on a can't-miss animated film, predicting it would bomb at the box office. And it did. Oh, what 2006 animated films bombed at the box office? I'm trying to think. I can't think of any. So, uh, but uh, there's so many. I mean, she's worked for attorneys. She's worked for a number of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, for a flat rate of $10,000 a month, you can rent Day's Insight. She has about five monthly clients at a time, offering them unlimited 24-hour access. Working from her airy Tribeca account, uh, apartment, sorry, fielding calls while juggling domestic life as the mother of a 16-year-old boy whose friends are often over in packs. The commotion is helpful, she says, allowing her to keep her rational mind busy while she picks up on things from left field. Uh, she says that having a teenager, though, can be psychically distracting. I don't want to see what he did with that girl until 2 a.m., she says, but I can. Uh, a typical early call last year, a prominent Wall Street money manager asked whether she should pull out of a risky multi-million dollar energy deal or let his money ride. My gut, Day said, is that you're not going to get your return. The money manager listened and yanked his investment, she said, just days before the deal nosedived. So she began as a psychic back in the 1990s, uh, looking to pick up extra money after she got divorced. A friend she was giving stock tips to finally started paying her for these stock tips and started to realize, hey, she really knows what she's doing. That led to her first book, Practical Intuition, and ever since then she's worked with uh, celebrities like Jennifer Aniston, Demi Moore, and uh, so many different businesses. And she's not the only one either. Carla Barron, the psychic star of Court TV's Haunting Evidence, uh, says roughly half the 20 to 30 readings she gives each week are now business-related. And Boston-based mentalist John Stetson says that after years of performing on cruise ships and in the saddest comedy clubs, he now has a Rolodex of businesses, including Fortune 500 companies that call him for intuition workshops. The relationship between psychics and the powerful have always been close. In the Bible, Joseph found favor with Pharaoh by uncannily interpreting the Egyptian leader's dreams. Centuries later, the supposed forecasting abilities of Nostradamus and the mad monk Rasputin endeared both men to the upper classes. So there you have it. I mean, you can make $10,000 a month being a psychic, provided that you can actually know what you're talking about and help these businesses out. I wish somebody would come and advise us through psychic abilities of what we should do, because we're clueless. You asked for it. Go ahead. Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Except we're not paying for it. Gotta give it to us for free. Speaking of giving but it to us But then again, for free, they already knew that. Yeah, they did. They did. But they didn't know that because of their psychic abilities. They just know that we're cheap. <laughs> Matt Costa, what do you have for us? Famous pictures of a handful of warriors from an undiscovered tribe in the rainforest on the Brazilian-Peruvian border has now emerged far beyond from being unknown. The tribe's existence has been noted since 1910, and the mission to photograph them was undertaken in order to prove that uncontacted tribes still exist in the area endangered by the menace of the logging industry. The disclosures have been made by the man behind the pictures, Jose Jose Carlos Morelis, 61, of one of the handful of experts in the indigenous tribes working for the Brazilian Indian 
Protection Agency, which is dedicated to the search to searching out remote tribes and protecting them. In his first interview since the disclosure of the tribe's existence, Morelli's described how he found the group detailing how they lived and how he planned to public planned the publicity to protect them and other tribes in, sim in similar danger of losing the habitat. Morelli's admitted that the tribe was first known about almost a century ago and that they apparently, apparently changed chance encounter that produced the now famous images was no accident, but the revelation that the existence of the tribe was already established will provoke awkward questions over why a decision was made to try, the try to photograph them, which is also a form of contact in itself, just to make a political point. Morelli's has no regrets arguing that the pictures and video released to the world were powerful and indisputable evidence to those who say Isolated tribes no longer exist in the Amazon. That's from the uh, the Guardian. So, Pretty neat. I guess so. All to save a couple of trees. Hmm. Have you seen these pictures on the internet? Yeah, yeah, I have. I at first I thought they were fake, but I thought it was just some guys. I don't know from from a New Jersey Devils game. Yeah. <laughs> See, I. Uh, when it comes to saving trees, I have my own little saying I like to say. Save a tree, eat a... Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's late, but not that late. Save a horse, ride a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's the worst song ever. <laughs> All right, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? I got something from the Middleborough Gazette. <clears throat> a subsidiary of SouthCoastToday.com and the South Coast Media News Group. In Middleborough. As the Sci-Fi Channel gets ready to premiere its new season of Ghost Hunters International, the next round of ghost hunting in Middleborough will take place sometime next month, as Board of Selectmen recently approved the request of another paranormal society to investigate the Town Hall for Ghosts. Although the exact date of the ghostly investigation hasn't been revealed to the public to avoid a possible media frenzy, Selectwoman Marsha Brunel volunteered to accompany the members of the Enfield Paranormal Society of Enfield, Connecticut, after members of her board were concerned that the town could incur costs to hire someone to open the building and keep it open during the 10-hour-long investigation. Is there going to be a cost to us, asked Selectman uh, Chairperson Adam Bond, and if there is, are you going to cover it? Ghost Society member Pat Martin said that most towns typically do not incur any costs associated with investigation. Miss Brunel was pleased and volunteered to uh, spend the entire time there with the group during the investigation. She said her seven-member group wanted to conduct a study after they read reports of a prior investigation that was done in the building by local members of the Paranormal Institute of New England. In February, Ed Billiou of Middleborough and Len Anderson of Bridgewater investigated the 135-year-old building for paranormal activity. After their investigation, they presented selectmen in March with evidence of paranormal presence in the town hall, including recording sounds and orbs that appeared in several digital pictures taken on the balcony of the second-floor grand ballroom. We would like to augment what Mr. Well, you and Mr. Anderson did by adding our by adding our team's uh, investigation armed with extensive technology, 
said Ms. Martin, who is also a member of the Cohasset Finance Committee and the host of a cable show in her own town. We want to gather as much information as we can and will turn all evidence over to the town of Middleborough. To avoid a repeat study that was done before, Selectman Patrick Roberts, Rogers sorry, asked Ms. Martin what her group intended to do differently from the Paranormal Institute. We're bigger than them, she replied. We use state-of-the-art technology, and we will be here for a longer amount of time. We're serious about what we do. After a unanimous vote, Mr. Bond said that he encouraged this type of activity in the town. I encourage it, and I think it's fun, he said. It's an enjoyable experience. So founding, well, not founding fathers, but town fathers, you know, now looking at something like this for historic record, I guess. And, you know, what does bother me about it, though, is is that they're saying, what are you going to do differently than the group before? And they should kind of be more open to having repeated experimentation of this if if there really is a... Well, that's Evidence what science is all about. Yeah, I mean, why, why do you have to say, well, you can do it, but only if you do it differently or only if you, you know, you're going to further the cause. If this location is haunted, and for, it seems for the most part, Middleborough is accepting that it is and they're prom- willing to promote that it is. It's one of my old stomping grounds, actually, you know, from Did back in the 80s. Middleborough in general, the town hall in particular? Well, both, actually. So you've had experiences there, and you've documented activity there? or Didn't document it. Like I said, it was just one of the places I went to go check out and hang out in. Um, believe it or not, well, most people don't know this, Tom Thumb, you know, the famous um, person of little stature. Sure, his wife. Yeah, met his wife there. That's where they were from and where they retired to. Uh, that house, believe it or not, uh, has had report of activity. Um, well, she was one of the, uh, she was a bumpus. Yes. Who is uh, quite, you know, one of the founding families of Wareham. And you know, right. there's many of those Bumpus uh, locations have activity attached to them as well, as, as we'll soon find out in a coming up investigation, which we're going to get to sooner or yeah. later. All right. Well, that does it for this week's edition of The Week in Weird. If you have a story you'd like to send us, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the forum page, and then there's a Week in Weird thread. Drop in a link or the whole story right there. And if we read it on the air, we'll not only give you full credit, but we'll also send you a bumper sticker. WPSM. All right, we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with Matt Costa and Matt Moniz. And uh, we are still on the air as far as I know. But we'd like to know for sure. Call us up with some questions, some comments, some stories of the paranormal. 508 But let's get right back into the discussion with Scott and Dave Goudsward co-authors of the new book, Shadows Over New England. You still with us, guys? I'm still here. Still right. here. There you go. You, they're, they're troopers. They're hanging on. Two for O. <laughs> so we were talking before uh, before the news about you know Stephen King and the creation of Derry and, and how that whole area uh, became kind of almost like a real town in our minds based on the descriptions that he gave and the number of times that he used it. I mean, what about Castle Rock? This is another place where through the books that he came out with and the movies that it seemed like for a while too by the way as soon as he wrote a castle rock book there was a castle rock movie based on it coming right out immediately after it uh but that seems to be like a whole other you know community of horror unto itself actually the first castle rock uh movie i guess technically is stand by me that yeah that's true scott check check me on that one 
Absolutely. You know, it's not really hard, but you know, it's still oh. an awesome story. It's a great movie, too. Actually, what about Cujo? Wouldn't that actually almost be a Castle Rock story, too? Yeah, it is a Castle Rock story, yes. Uh, I have to have to look it up in the book to make sure now that I said that on the air. It's all a blur. Yeah, it does kind of all blend together after a while. But, I mean, here's another example of an entire, you know... Silver Bullet? Yeah, that might have been, too. Silver Bullet's an interesting one because that actually transforms from several different locations that show up in a number of his stories. Uh, Cujo is in Brighton, which okay. is technically Castle Rock area. Actually, it's Town Road, Castle Rock, but the hospital's in Brighton. Bridgeton. And Bridgeton is another one of those towns that shows up on the periphery. That's why it's all blurring together. I mean, it, but for a while, uh, as I was saying, it was like as soon as they could crank out a book like Needful Things, for example. I think it came out in 91, and by 93, the, the Needful Things movie was already out. It seemed like as soon as he got the book published, the, the movie script was already in production. Movies follow the money. Now, what yeah. about Salem's Lot? Which <laughs> which version of it? <laughs> the good the, one? The bad one? That's true. The ugly one. Yeah, well, that would what, be pretty much you guys got a problem with David Soul, or? And then there was Return to Salem's Lot, which is about the nicest thing I can well, say I about it is it's Tara Reed's first film appearance. <laughs> nice. I've got to tell you how bad it is. Nice. Hey, Tom Brady, you know, dated her, so let's not, uh, she can't be that bad. It, it definitely seems like, though, uh, Stephen King has made, you know, Maine in particular, uh, kind of this whole world where, as I was saying to Matt Moniz before, you know, people come to this area and these are the sites that they want to see and they don't realize that they're not real. There's no dairy standpipe. No, but there is a real life equivalent in Bangor. And Bangor really is a dairy. In fact, when it first, uh, he had originally, when he had moved up there, he had been saying to the locals that there was so much material in town that he could probably write an entire book on Bangor. And lo and behold, there it is. Um, the one, the only, the world-famous Bangor. It's actually Derry, Maine, in terms of the roads, the library location, the uh, the standpipe, of course. Of course, Bangor still has their standpipe. But, uh, in fact, uh, as early as like 1983, they had been in town for two or three years at that point in time. He had written a, a, a small booklet locally called um, uh, Black Magic and Music, a uh, novelist perspective on Bangor, he said, flipping pages quickly. Uh, and he said point blank that there were stories in Bangor he could write a novel about. And three years later, out comes it with the standpipe and... The waterer and the—I mean, it's—it's it's basically the same town, and but, that's where it gets blurry in people's head. And also, though, when when you look at these stories that he was telling, uh, and maybe this is true for a lot of the New England horror writers, but it's kind of uh, allegory, you know. I mean, we have this monster that lives in you know the the sewers and comes out and feeds, but it's almost like it can be read into as. You know, almost maybe the New England puritanical, you know, atmosphere. Uh, something that comes out and rears its head every once in a while and, and chokes the life out of the youth. Or, you know, there, there's so many different ways that you can interpret this stuff. Is that the, because we overanalyze it because of our nature? Or do you think that these different horror stories really can just relate to us as a society? 
That's, it's an interesting perspective that the it creature is actually a manifestation of Puritan guilt. I like that one. <laughs> I, I may actually have to steal that one for some use in the future. Hey, feel free. If Stephen King disagrees, you can call up and tell us right now. Absolutely. But uh, terribly cool if he did. <laughs> maybe he's a fan. I don't know. I have no idea. Well, he's got a radio station of his own, so yeah, he can certainly he's... operate technology. They turned down our offer to syndicate up there, so... Oh, speaking of syndication, we were just working with a buddy of yours, uh, Penny Dreadful. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw that on your website. We just did an episode up at uh, Mystery Hill with her, speaking of oddball stuff. And that'll be in the uh, upcoming season that, that premieres this fall? That'll be in October. Uh, it's uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things is the An movie. Awful movie. Awful movie because we were happened to, like a week before this, use it in uh, Shadows Over Florida, filmed in Miami. And all I'll say about it is, you got sacrificial tables and alpacas. What more could you possibly want? That sounds awesome, actually. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, King was not the first author to, to use Maine. Um, he was the latest, but uh, you've got people in uh, towns such as Castine, Maine, a real town. A fellow named Noah Brooks, uh, probably best known for other things, such as being a journalist, but he wrote a collection of supernatural stories set in Maine about 1894, changed the name of the town to something else. So it's it's sort of a tradition up there. Now, Scott, being a, a, a writer and a, with what you do in today's, you know, world of literature in New England, mm-hmm. um, do you see now that uh, more paying homage to these authors who have used these locations before? Or do you think that now people are trying to find their own little twists of New England? Because there's, you know, for, you know, Dunwich, for example, you know, that that's something that automatically evokes something in people's mind that are fans of the genre. Do a lot of more modern writers try to use that to their advantage? Or are they trying to find their own little corner of New England to try and create their whole new, uh, their own mythos? Um, I think from what I've been reading, you know, there's still always, you know, you'll always see the throwbacks to Poe and Lovecraft. But I think a lot of them are just trying to discover their own voice, make up their own little towns, or, you know, existing seasons, just be something around that. Like, um, uh, John Murray writes primarily mostly in Boston and in the suburbs. Uh, Charles Grant, who made his own little city in Connecticut called uh, Oxron Station, it's just, they're paying homage in their own way, but they're also just making up their own little towns and doing the things in them. What, what about yourself? What do you draw on for inspiration in your writing? Oh, God. <laughs> you um, didn't know there'd be a quiz on that part. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, nightmares, uh, there's a lot of stuff, you know, you just find out, you know, whatever you've been dreaming about, you can sometimes pull it into stories. Um, locally, I've written some stuff in Boston. But I, I always used to try to use, like, Ward Hill and Methuen and, and Haverhill, since I'm very familiar with those areas, and kind of base stuff in it around that town because I know the area so well. You, you know, it, I was thinking, I, I, I have an idea that I've been mulling over in my head for a while um, as a writer, thinking that I wanted to get down on paper. And I started to get really bogged down in my mind with, you know, trying to be accurate with the uh, geographical locations and and doing the research to different locations. And once I read your book, I actually realized, you know, you don't have to do that per se um, because, you know, you can create your own idea, your own model based on other 
other areas and other towns. So I think that's kind of a, a liberating freedom to a writer to be able to not have to be so precise and so exact. Like if I'm writing a story for the newspaper, obviously I have to make sure that I, you know, get all the correct pertinent information in there. But when it comes to fiction, you can easily just substitute this town for that town or throw a new name on a town that already exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does that make it harder, you know, in terms of your jobs of trying to to piece together where these locations might actually be? Did you have to do a lot of guesswork in some of these? or? Uh, as, as a writer, it makes it, you know, infinitely more easier because you don't have to worry about where Tremont Street connects to Com Ave or, you know, where Mass Ave gets off on Osterow Drive. And it helps you us be lazier, too. That helps, too. Yeah. We can be a lot oh. lazier. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But well, the other uh, part of the problem sorry, is artistic, you have a, artistic license. Yeah. And if you have a story that takes place in a real location and you make a mistake, um, if somebody knows that area, it's immediately going to pull them out of the story. True. I mean, that's we, we found that in the uh, horror mo- first horror movie full-length ever filmed in Boston. And I can't think of the name of it at the moment. <laughs> you remember the one I mean, Scott, don't you? When I made you go through Boston looking for Pearl Street? I think he's uh, just as stumped as you are, Dave. Yeah, yeah I am, actually. Well, I, it, it, it was Rachel right. Ward's first movie, and it actually had several oh, names. The, I think the motorcycle. Yeah, it was originally called Terror Eyes, but that's not what it was released as. But they've got this big climactic chase scene that starts at the Boston Common, and one scene later... She's too, the motorcycle is tooling along the Charles River with Boston in the background. So they're on the Cambridge side in two and a half seconds. And then they cut back and they're back in downtown Boston. And it's like, what, 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 what? Well, we're like that with any movie, though. It doesn't have to just be hard. I mean, anytime we see something, we're like, wait a minute. That wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But I think in horror, it's more important because you're already working with a very narrow field of willing disbelief. That's I mean, you're point. willing to disbelieve in the fact that there's, that there's a werewolf on that stage who's there, you know, or a vampire, or a reanimated corpse. And for the sake of argument, we're talking fictional encounters here. And what happens is, you already have that in your head, you know it's not really true, it's just a horror movie, and they make a, an egregious error like that, and that's it. You just can't get back into it. So a fictional location gives you that freedom. Well, we are talking with Scott and Dave Goudsward, authors of Shadows Over New England. You can get your own copy at shadows-over.com. Find out more about the book and see some stills from their episode of Penny Dreadful that's coming up. Uh, i got to ask you guys, I mean, maybe there's something to this, maybe there isn't, but what's with the connection between uh, a lot of these New England locations, especially in Massachusetts, and episodes of the X-Files? Is that, you know, just based on the fact that it, it it carries that type of New England atmosphere to some of these stories, or was Chris Carter a native or something? I'm not sure if Chris Carter was a native or not, but I think it all you know stems back to New England's history, going all the way back to the to the uh, witch hysteria. You know, it's just such a deep history with the supernatural that it's not the natural palate. I also think, and I was kind of thinking about this as I read over the numerous. Uh, episodes of the X-Files that took place here. I mean, and, and a lot of them being very memorable episodes, but it kind of clicked in my mind, too, that when you're filming a show in Vancouver, you know, a really easy location to duplicate is anything in New England because yeah. it's it just a lot of deciduous forest and, you know, it looks a lot alike, so it's easy to substitute one for the other. 
and again, as a New Englander, you spot little things like the subway cars are nowhere are they T related vehicles. The colors are wrong, the shapes are wrong, etc. But and that's speaking as someone who spent a lot of time trying to figure out where the subway graveyard is supposed to have been in the episode of X Files. <laughs> the one in Revere. Yeah. Yeah. I'd still want to find that. Still not quite sure where it is. I we actually just, am. We ran, ran, it's we actually, ran across the same thing down here. You you really want to know where it is? Yeah. Actually, it's in Second Winthrop. Edition. It's in Winthrop. Well, no wonder I can't find it in Revere. I have relatives that used to live near it. That's how I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, uh, it just seems to like uh, you know when you're presenting stories of the paranormal and and the strange and unusual. You know, like I was saying before, New England kind of just gives it that automatic uh, credibility, that autom- almost that automatic believability where you can say, oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of strange stuff happens there all the time. People in the rest of the country like, all them New England people are a bunch of weirdos. I believe that. There really could be the kindred out there. I'm not having any trouble arguing with you. <laughs> no, not at all. Is that coming from a native or is that coming from somebody that's now down in Florida and is turning that bias against us? Uh... The longer I live in Florida, the more I appreciate New England. There you go. And that's all I'm going to say on that topic. <laughs> Keeping in mind I'm the only person in Florida who owns two Hannah Dustin statue t-shirts and a spooky South Coast. There you go. <laughs> Actually, I also think you're the only person from Massachusetts down in Florida that's under the age of 60. So, And, and the only one who pronounces Haverhill correctly. I'm actually living quite near the namesake of my hometown of Haverhill, Mass. Only down here it's Haverhill, Florida. They founded it 50 years ago from Haverhill natives, and they've already managed to screw up the name. (laughs) It doesn't take long, either. (sighs) No, no, it doesn't. But speaking of uh, Haverhill, or Haverhill, uh, Scott, what are some of the stories that are connected to to your town and, and the town that of which Dave has cut most connections to? Well, I, I think probably one of the, the most famous ones would be like Hannah Dustin, mm-hmm. the colonial axe murderess who went out one night and killed a bunch of Indians that hadn't killed their family. Or the old countess who said the haunted graveyard up in um, Broadway, is it, David? Hmm? The countess's grave? Countess's grave in Rocks Village, yeah, from John Greenleaf Whittier's poem. Yep. Those, those are probably the uh, two big ones. Yeah, Whittier, despite the fact that he's best known as a rural agrarian poet, he knew his local horror. He knew his local supernatural. Most of his stories are collected in two booklets, and they're basically anthologies of local folklore. Uh, Ghosts, uh, murdered Indians, curses, you know, the good stuff. Well, one area that I've noticed uh, is kind of our neck of the woods, uh, the South Coast and the Cape, at least in, in your book and, and in your research, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of fictional use of Cape Cod in a lot of these ghost stories, yet there's so much folklore uh, and mythology around them. If you read some of the the books that are especially coming out now, like Cape Encounters or uh, some of these other books that have been coming out the last few years, there's a rich history of these stories uh, happening here, but they don't seem to be blending into the fictional world at all. Yeah, I, and this was a... a we made a conscious decision very early on that it was going to be limited to fiction versus ghost stories, which uh, you can pick a ghost story, and nine times out of ten, there's at least five versions of it in five different locations. And 
I'm good, but even I'm not going to try to track down which one of those is the original. You know, every haunted uh, covered bridge has the exact same story attached to it in some form or another. So they're they're almost archimythic types. Mythic um, archetypes. Excuse me. It's getting late. <laughs> All right, well, we are talking with Dave and Scott Gowsworth, author of Shadows Over New England. If you'd like to join in the discussion, give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. If you want to find out more about Dave or Scott or the book, you can go to shadows-over.com. We're going to take our last break of the night. When we come back, we'll be back with more here on Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast the final 15 minutes or so of the show. If you'd like to join in, give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Maybe you've read some of these stories uh, growing up and there's a location that you want to know about. I'm pretty sure Dave and Scott have researched it, and if not, well, then you know we can just make it up as we go along. Guys, uh, you said that you know, you've know you already started work on Shadows Over Florida. Is this is the plan to bring this to every state, or is it you're just going to start at least in the ones that you're in for right now? Well, it depends on which one of us you ask and when you ask. <laughs> um, Scott, Scott's already talking about Shadows Over the Big Apple, and I'm already thinking, this is my last one for a while. Well, I mean, maybe you guys could farm out the work, like uh, Mark <laughs> Moran and Mark Skarman, you know, with their weird U.S. series. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think I'm too much of a control freak to give it up to anyone else. If you can let your brother in on it, I'm sure you can let a total stranger do it. Oh, I double-check all of his work, too. <laughs> but to go back to something we were talking about before the break, Cape Cod not having much of an uh, association with horror, mm-hmm. uh, I can think of two off the top of my head that I think are significant. Uh, one being Barnstable has Edward Gorey. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, there's this little movie that was filmed out there you might have heard of called Jaws. Well, now Jaws, Jaws two, Jaws three, and you... that's the... sorry, go ahead. That's Cape Cod. Well, I, I was going to actually open it up to a whole different part of of um, you know Martha's Vineyard seems to have a very tight connection with a lot of this stuff outside of mainland Cape Cod. I mean, Martha's Vineyard definitely seems to have a, a number of. Stories coming out of it, Matt. You were going to say? Yeah, but the issue with Jaws is it was supposed to be uh, Long Island that it was based out of, not actually Cape Cod, though. True, but I'll take it. That was a <laughs> that was a fun one to research. Um, yeah, but the, you are correct. The original novel does take place in Amity, New York, which I assume is somewhere near Amityville, but that's a different story. I never really got confirmation on that. With all the all the talking to people I did about Amityville, I was like, "Is you know how close is that to the ocean? Are we talking about you know the same place that Jaws was supposed to take place?" But nobody's really sure. Well, it's it's, it's one there. of those little mysteries about Jaws. For instance, I still don't know where Peter Benchley is buried. He died in New Jersey. He had property all over the place. Maybe they spread his ashes over the sea. That would be my guess, but I never was able to confirm it. I know his father and grandfather were buried on, uh, um, I think it's on mainland. I'd have to check it. But it it seems like, you know, the the further, you've been to the Cape, I assume, you know, mm-hmm. being Haverhill natives. Uh, and the more you get down there, the further down you get, just the more of a feel it has that would lend itself to more horror stories, I think. I, I agree uh, visually too. I mean, there are some spots where the you know you've got the marsh coming in, the fog rolling, and the lighthouse in the distance. It it almost seems too easy. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe, it, maybe that's it. You know, how can I possibly improve on what I just saw? I'm not even going to try. All right, well, we have a call on the line, so let's go to the phones. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hey, Tim. It's Chris. How are you? Hey, Chris. How you been? Good, good. Hey, uh, well, hello to your guests, Dave and Scott. Hello. Hey. Hello. Um, well, I'll just dive right in. Uh, there's nothing that frightens me more than a child who murders, which, of course, uh, brings the, the, the movie The Bad Seed, The Good Son. I understand The Good Son was filmed in New England. Do you know the location? Yes, actually, it was filmed. Uh, actually, it filmed in a couple of different places. It was supposed to be set in Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, Black, I'm referring to Blackport, that uh, that last scene where the mother is um, <clears throat> uh, making a decision whether or not to save her son. Yeah. Those, those. That was a ringer. It was actually a place out in the Midwest. Oh, okay. <laughs> it looked like it was like right on the ocean with this ledge. And the kids were dangling off of it. Yeah, remember that I, scene? I know the scene. A very impressive scene. But yes, I, I know. I was always wondering if that was close by. No, that that's actually not even uh, in the area. I'm trying to remember where it was out west. It was a very odd spot, like Wisconsin or someplace, which you don't think of for Rocky Craig. Really, I know. Uh, most of the filming of the movie was uh, Beverly, Gloucester, mm-hmm. Marblehead. Uh, Especially with that scene with all the uh, white birch trees. That was eerie, yeah. too. Oh, if you remember the scene where he causes the multi-car pile-up. Mm-hmm. That's the only part I remember. Mr. Highway? Yes. That's the only part that, I remember. That was filmed up... Uh... Help me here, Scott. Is that... Was well, that... If my computer was working, I could. Oh, well, that doesn't help. One of the closed Air Force bases up in New Hampshire. Oh. It was either Pease or... Actually, I think it was Pease. No, yes. I'm thinking about it. But they, yeah, they had so there wasn't a lot of traffic available at the time. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that was clearly Macaulay Culkin's best acting job, if I can just say. Yeah, way better than Richie Rich. <laughs> he dies in it. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Oh, was that out loud? I'm sorry. Hey, way to ruin it voice. for the people that haven't seen it. Thanks, sorry, Scott. go rent it. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, it's a perfect example that you're talking about, Dave, of how they can take different locations and try to make that New England. You know, feel to them. It's different now. Nowadays, you know, our our state government is pushing for more film work to be done here in the state. Now they're building, you know, Hollywood East out in Plymouth, so they're they're really pushing that as as a money maker for the state. But before, you know, you'd find that they were using other locations or even sound stages to substitute mm-hmm. for these places. Yeah, and well, uh, uh, what they do is they just film out of, out of the U.S. because everything is just so much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the horror movies now are being filmed in like Romania and Czechoslovakia because they have the studios and they have all of the land out there. They don't have to pay all the U.S. taxes on it, or all the union dues. What about that scene in Dunwich Horror, the Devil's Hop Yard? Was that just a Hollywood set? That, that's a Hollywood set. Devil's Hop Yard itself does exist. Uh, that's, a, um, that's in Connecticut mm-hmm. by that name. Um, most of the Dunwich Horror descriptions are either out in the Midwestern part of Massachusetts uh, around... Robin Reservoir, North Salem, okay. or um, the Sacrificial Table itself, which is probably North Salem, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. which has been an ongoing debate for years. Mm. But the other, uh, Marblehead had Old Burial Hill, the that marvelous old cemetery there. Yeah. They actually used that in for Macaulay Culkin film, and that's the scene where he hides his cigarettes in the well. Oh, yeah. I throws the dog in there. Mm-hmm. That well doesn't actually isn't in there. No. Uh, they, they actually added phony gravestones and fake stone walls and 
snow, and apparently we're confusing the heck out of the locals who go by and go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Crystal, thank you for checking in. Well, thanks, Tim. Now have you got me night. wanting to watch that movie again, so oh, I'm going to have to go well, home. Yeah, I've I'd... got my own copy. Yeah, I got, I got I'm one sleeping somewhere. with the nightlight on tonight. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Have a good night. All right, well, uh, I mean, absolutely, that's, you know, just another example of how, you know, Hollywood can take little bits and pieces of things and try to make it their own. Yeah, and um, that's, I mean, it's such a marvelous example. I mean, those cliffs, uh, you know, of course, they have Macaulay and Elijah wired in, so they're not going anywhere should something happen. But you you start reassessing your career decisions as you're dangling off the edge of a ledge, I think. <laughs> All right, well, we'd like to thank you guys for, for joining us tonight, and uh, Dave and Scott. Definitely go out and check out Shadows Over New England by David Goudsward and Scott T. Goudsward, available at shadows-over.com, as well as amazon.com and wherever else you can get books online. Right, guys? Absolutely. All right, well, we look forward to talking to you in the future when uh, Shadows Over Florida comes out. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Hey, well, watch, watch, watch who you're calling gentlemen. Oh, my mistake. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. Talk to you real soon. Bye-bye. Take care. And, of course, we'll get to see them when uh, the Penny Dreadful episode comes out. That'll be pretty good, too. That's coming out this fall, so stay tuned. You can go to shilling-shockers.com uh, for more information about that. I think it's just shillingshockers.com. So uh, that wraps it up for our discussion about Shadows Over New England. Next week we're going to be joined by Dr. William Bradshaw, who is the author of Sinister Among Us, which is a fictional novel. Uh, dealing with demonology, but he is a demonologist. He has a degree from a university out in Scotland. So we're going to talk to him about demonology in general, as well as get the inside story about the book. And then uh, in the coming weeks, we've got a whole bunch of stuff planned, including something really special coming up on July 26th. I don't want to give away too much just yet, but let's just say we're going to be doing something real old-time radio, uh, something that hasn't been done maybe on these airwaves even ever. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Matt Moniz is going to be at TapsCon coming up at the end of the month. Uh, you can go to TapsCon.com to find out more information. Matt, you, uh, you're already packed and ready to go? or I've got a good portion of it all set up. I've got a whole bunch of uh, evidence and artifacts I'm bringing with me. It's going to be a, a very good presentation. So there you go. So if you haven't already bought your tickets, go to TapsCon.com and, and you can buy them there. Uh, and if you want to find out more about what's going on with Matt Moniz, you can go to the Moniz Report on SpookySouthCoast.com. Oh, no, wait, you can't because he hasn't put anything up no. there yet. Oh. It would help if I had Internet access at home. That's true. That's true. Well, you can always email me what you need put it up there, and I'll, I'll do it for you, too. That works as well. And, uh, of course, next week, though, Matt Costa, you'll have to be in the studio if well, when Moniz is gone because I don't know if I can do everything alone. So I, I've I'll done so far all right tonight. I've only messed up once yeah. or twice, but... Now comes the hard part. Now comes the end of the program, which is where we uh, will run into the most trouble. But uh, stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for all of our upcoming guest information. And just want to throw out a note there for people who've been waiting to hear the last few episodes. They are all up there. They're all online now. They're all available via podcast. I know that Matt Costa with today was trying to get some of the episodes put up on the uh, archive there. And I'll get them up to planetparanormal.com as well in the coming days because, man, I don't mind throwing out a plug there if they're, if, if, if they're listening. Verizon Fios, outstanding. What used to take me an hour and a half to load up is now taking me two minutes to load up. So if you don't have Verizon Fios, I highly recommend it. And uh, maybe they'll send me a T-shirt or something for, for plugging them. All right, so for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. 
Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it doesn't.